and we're in Acts 15. Lydia's actually done a majority of my sermon already, so thanks, Lydia. <laughs> uh, uh, unbroken praise. Um, that's going to be the heart of, of this, the sermon this morning. Before we get into it, Lord, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for speaking to the body as you, as you continue to demonstrate. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together. Uh, Lord, may uh, the words that I speak be edifying to the body. And may we be prepared to hear what you have to say in your name. Amen. So Acts 15 is a pretty controversial section of scripture. Um, but I think, you know, as, we, as we, we read something like this, it's very easy to caricature um, individuals. The circumcision group. I mean, come on, guys. Like, they're just holding on to the old ways. Just let it go already. Um, stop dragging us all down. Um, is, is that really, you know, what's, what's going on here, or do we need to think about it more? So some of the questions that, as you know, I've, I've sort of worked on this come to me are, is the circumcision group, are they holding on to the old ways, or are they, mis, are they misunderstanding the use of the old ways? Are we clear on what the expectations of salvation were in the Old Testament? Who are the family of God in the Old Testament? And is the family of God to be separate from the Gentiles? If you were in charge of the Jerusalem Council and had to decide what would happen if circumcision wasn't required, what sort of rules would you come up with? What decisions would you make? Would you put any rules in place? So if you think about, then, what actually is decided, I think it can be surprising. You know, Acts 15, 19 through 20, and James is speaking, says, Therefore my judgment is that you should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and what, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Rules? I mean, that's the decision here, is, is that we need more rules. <laughs> I thought we were sort of past that point. Or maybe even, you know, what, what happens the verse right after this one? And he says, For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every, every city those who proclaim for him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Didn't we get rid of the law of Moses? Like, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Like, it's fulfilled. We don't have to care about it anymore. And, and, and they're coming th through and saying, like, because these rules are applicable, why? Because the law, you know, Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Like, it just makes us pause and go, is that, if I was in charge, would I really make those type of decisions? Yeah. So, do... I mean, the Holy Spirit was the one that directed them, right? Yeah. So Father Stephen DeYoung, I'm going to quote him a variety of times. I have a lot of quotes, um, just because I feel like people say it better than I do. So, um, first one, Father Stephen DeYoung, far from pro proclaiming that the law no longer applies to Christians, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 directly, strictly, and literally applies the law to the life of the Christian church. The law is not here rejected, but here established. The dispute, was not, which was here ended, was not between pro-law an anti-law party, but a dispute over how the law should be rightly interpreted, understood, and apply, applied in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
I'll read that last part. The dispute over the law should be rightly interpreted, understood, and implied in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the challenge. This is what they're trying to work out. How does what happened change the way we approach the law? So the, some, what's gonna, what we're going to get to, and this I sort of, well, again, what Lydia sort of already hit, hit on for us is the prohibitions are focused on not participating in false worship but only true worship of the one true God. Participating in false worship is to undermine the very nature of what was accomplished. So as we think about this, I think there's some things that can really sort of correct and get us lined up so that we're on the right foot as we start to think about this passage. So one, um, as I really started studying this, it is surprising how many people will say the decisions in Acts 15 are about pragmatism or compromise. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's not about pragmatism or compromise. We'll build out why, but that's just, so people will say, well, then therefore, we, we, you know, like that was applicable to them because they compromised. They were trying to appease the party of the, of the circumcision. It's not, just not what consistent with scripture. Uh, two, the vocation of Israel can be fulfilled without the Gentiles. Peter's when talking to Cornelius, says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he says, it's unlawful. It's not there. There is no law that says not to do that. Think about it this way. Israel is called to be the priests to the nations, but Israel has a priesthood. If that priesthood formed a group and said, Israel's so dirty, we don't want to deal with them, are they really living into their vocation? In the same way, if Israel says, pass Gentiles, I'm not going to deal with you, they're, it's not, they're not living into their vocation. They are passing on what they're supposed to be doing. And Peter is just blatantly disregarding what their call is supposed to be. He is standing in Joppa, Simon the son of Jonah, and the last time we had someone in Joppa, Jonah, he was called to the Gentiles. Peter is then, is, is the question is, is will Peter be just like Jonah, or will he be actually getting it right? Will he finally get it? The Gentiles were always supposed to be blessed through Abraham's seed. And if we're constantly holding them at arm's length, we're not doing our job. Number three, salvation could never be earned or merited. Often I think what happens is, is, is we, we spend time in the New Testament, we're, we want to emphasize what amazing things Jesus did. And in so doing, we can overstate what has already been true of the character of God. And so in the same way, we can look at, say, salvation that is brought to Israelites as they're brought out of Egypt. They didn't merit that. They've done nothing to earn it, but God, out of his graciousness, saves them. In the same way, when they're in the wilderness wandering and they have the snake on the pole to look at, again, it's not merited. They've done nothing to earn it. In the same way, being saved from Jesus' death and resurrection isn't merited. We haven't earned it. 
But that doesn't stop there, right? Because that brings us to the next one. Uh, or or you know, even thinking about Genesis 1 and 2. God puts humanity in the garden. They haven't merited that favor, that responsibility to be the image of God, and the, all of that that comes with that. God gives them that authority. But there's an expectation that something's going to happen with that. So the next one, grace negates change in behavior or expectations of works. This is another one where we, we can get to the point where if we spend too much time in one section, we go, well, therefore, grace is this thing that frees us from any expectations. No. There is an expectation, just like when humanity is put in the garden, they haven't merited that placement. But this doesn't mean that there isn't an expectation. They are to be obedient, and they are expected to do something. There is work that is to be done. That is their vocation. Being called out, being saved, isn't the end, it's the beginning of something. Worship of something other than God would not be really to have put faith in the one true God. This is the expectation, right? Grace, if you then turn and still worship something else, isn't really having changed, isn't really having turned, having put faith where you needed to. To put it more bluntly, there will be no Baal worshipers in the new heavens and earth. <laughs> Number five, faith is primarily corporate and not individual. We live in a culture that so overemphasizes the individual. It's about me, 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 my salvation, my individual walk with God. It is a corporate at a much greater level than it is the individual. Yes, you are an individual, but you are called the family of God. We are called the temple of God corporately. Uh, there, there are a lot of scholars that are actually pressing for and really wanting to see, especially in the New Testament, the uh, y'all version of the New Testament. <laughs> because so many verses that say you aren't you individually. They're corporately you. And so we're called to be the body of Christ corporately. And so our, our faith, isn't something that we do individually. It is something that we live out together and we encourage each other and grow together and call each other to be more united than separate. So those are just some things to get the footwork right. So now as we get, we're to start to think about what does it mean to think about circumcision? So one to start with, did circumcision save an individual? Because if it, if it did, if it did, we have a problem. Because only the males are circumcised. If you were circumcised and you chose to worship Baal, will you be in the new heavens and earth? No. Circumcision doesn't save you. So we have to think about then what is circumcision and why does it matter and why would they be pressing for this idea of we need circumcision at this point in this portion of Acts? What's the thought? Like what is the, the rationale here? Uh, to, father, to quote Father Stephen DeYoung again, Abraham is called out of Babylon, the capital of the world and all of its negative connotations to become the foundation of a new nation and so circumcision enacts him cutting himself off from the world who are under the sway of the powers of darkness 
from which he came. Circumcision, that word circumcision, can be even translated as simply as to cut off. He is physically cutting off something to separate himself. It is a a visible demonstration of this separating himself from the world. And again, Abraham, in that cutting off, is not saying, I won't interact with the Gentiles, because you see that not true. It is a statement about the relationship with him and God. It isn't about a relationship of him holding Gentiles at bay. Consider Genesis 17, 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, As you, for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, before we go any farther, um, if you're able, stand with me for a moment. I don't have PowerPoint today, so these are things I'm... Okay, so uh, roll your shoulders for me, okay? Now, when you sit down, I would like you to focus on, the, on, on having good posture, okay? Don't slump. This, the long-term implications of sitting in bad, uh, bad position is it shapes you into the very thing you sit into. So as you sit down, sit as if you actually want to have um, a nice upright position. Go ahead. I'll get to that. We'll come back to that. Um, So you can see here, um, if you're not circumcised, you will be cut off. You can either cut off the world or you will be cut off and put back. That's that's what's driving at here. The the invitation is to be part of the covenant family or you can be separate from it. And in so doing, you rejoin the world. Father Stephen DeYoung again. This cutting off, takes place in relation to the genitals because it is not primarily an individual act of devotion or a pledge made by an individual. Rather, it is a constitutive of community and therefore involves not only the male, but his spouse and his progeny. The broader community of Israel was a family, the family of God. It began with the family of Abraham and was always composed of tribes, clans, family units. These units included strong elements of adoption, of incorporation of outsiders into family and clan. Newcomers, both by birth and adoption, shared in this cutting off as the ritual means of integration. Women and female children were integrated through their family bonds to the circumcised male, who was the head of the household, as only males were circumcised. The circumcised male cut the family unit off from the world, setting apart and there definitionally making it holy. So you can, you can be cut off from the world or you can be cut off from the covenant family. And you can hear that those themes he's talking about, that adoption was a strong element among us uh, in the family of God. And so if you think about that, then what we can really start to say here is Israelites are not a specific ethnicity or genetic makeup. And that's fundamental so as we start to talk about this. If we, we think of Israel as something that is um, these genes carried on throughout 
all of scripture, then we sort of miss really what's going on here. Uh, D.T. Lancaster puts it this way, the Torah forbids a sojourner from eating of the Passover. The sojourner is a non-Jew who resides among the Jewish people, has forsaken idolatry, abides by the laws of Noah, worships the God of Israel, but has not undergone conversion to become Jewish. Has not undergone conversion to become Jewish. So I think when he's saying that, we're not supposed to envision some sort of like uh, box that people get into and genetically are like modified, right? So what, what's, he, what's he driving at here? You know, what is he trying to communicate? Uh, if we go to Exodus 12, 48... This is right before the Passover. It says, if a, stranger shall so- if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as the native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now that verse alone is interesting. But if we go back just a couple verses, we have them as they are, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about uh, the Exodus itself. And it says, The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, there's been a lot of focus and discussion over what is that mixed multitude. But the general consensus is, the answer is, it's people besides just genetic Israelites. There is more that have come out of Israel than purely just those who are genetically of Abraham. So then when you get just slightly farther down and it says you need to circumcise to be able to participate in the Passover, D.C. Lancaster puts it this way, a person who undergoes conversion is accepted into the nation and may offer a Pesach lamb to eat of the sacrifice. The Torah says he shall be like a native of the land, Exodus 12, 48 which is to say he will be regarded as a natural-born son of Israel, i.e. an Israelite. So to become circumcised is to become part of the family of God. You start to see where, why this is starting to be significant to the circumcision, circumcision group. Consider Caleb. Um, you know, so Caleb comes out. What tribe is Caleb from? Anybody? Judah. 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 Okay, so Caleb is the tribe of Judah. So, but I want to, I want to read you something first, and then we'll go to Caleb. Uh, Genesis 15, 18 to 21. To your offspring I give this land, and, and, and this is God talking to Abram. To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and it goes on. So if we then jump to Joshua 14, 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua, Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him. you get it? The Kenizzites are the people who are in the land. So he has actually integrated himself. He has become an Israelite. He is no longer the people who stand opposed to God. He is one who is joined with the people. This is not about genetics. This is about a direct decision of who you worship and in the Old Testament to become directly tied to the family of God 
is to, be, to, to participate in circumcision. You start to see why this is such a significant thing for the people in Acts. We can consider Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Ruth, I, I love the way Ruth says it because I feel like it just really makes it really clear. Ruth 1.16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you to return from, the following, from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. That's the fundamental understanding here. To be an Israelite is to make yourself joined to God in such a way that you become part of the family of God. All right, stand up with me for a second. Roll your shoulders. Sit back down. Focus on your posture. Okay, so the purpose of circumcision, so if we start to really think about this, okay, then circumcision, what is the purpose of circumcision? Michael Heiser puts it this way, membership in the community was important for a specific reason. Only this community had the truth. Only Israel had the truth in regard to the nature of the true God among all gods and how one would be rightly related to him. In other words, only Israel knew about the way of salvation. Now, the Bible is very clear about this. You, God has his, his, those who testify about him everywhere. But there is a greater revelation that has been given to Israel and what that expectation is and of how to relate to God than others. And we, we have stories even from, say, the last hundred years of people who will see um, dreams of some, like Jesus basically coming to them. But then they go and seek out because that's not enough just in itself. They recognize there's something fundamentally transformative about what Jesus is offering. But they need someone to still like rev- to bring more revelation to that. So they go and seek it out. In the same way, to become part of the family of God is to get that revelation, not to just be like, oh, I generally know about God, but to really start to understand his character and his very nature. That is what it means to be part of the community. And that's why circumcision is, starts to be so fundamental. Father Stephen DeYoung again. Circumcision occupied a position of centrality in the old covenant, equivalent to baptism in the new. It was the marker of membership in the people of God. It constituted the people of Israel not as a national entity, but as a family, the family of God. It was nearly inconceivable then to the greater body of the faithful in Judea that someone would come to a member of the family of God and partake of Christ as the new Passover, without being first circumcised, Exodus 12, 48. I'm going to read that last part again. It was nearly inconceivable then to the greater body of the faithful in Judea that someone could come to be a member of the people of God and partake of Christ as the new Passover without being first circumcised. Do you understand why this is so fundamental? So why circumcision movement in Acts? If Jesus is our Passover lamb, and we are to participate in it through communion, and you're supposed to be circumcised to participate in Passover, then you need to be circumcised, unless you don't. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the question, right? So they're, they're, they're struggling with this. If you want to be integrated into the family of God, you need to be circumcised, unless you don't. So, then where does that get us? Uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, this one's a little long. I'm sorry, I apologize for this. St. Paul reveals that every element of circumcision finds its fulfillment in Christ. 
This does not mean that it is done away with. Rather, every element is filled to overflowing in such a way that Christ represents the truth and reality which stood behind the shadow of the ordinance of circumcision, Colossians 2.17. To return to the circumcision of the flesh, then, is to forsake the reality and fullness for image and shadow and remove oneself from Christ. <clears throat> if not outright, deny that, that Jesus... The Christ has come to that uh, as that fullness. Ba- basic to St. Paul's understanding of the crucifixion of Christ is that it represents an inversion of the court curse of Torah, Galatians 3.13. In his suffering and death, Christ was cut off from among the people. Christ's receipt of the curse, however, did not cut him off from life. Rather, God, be- rather being God, his cutting off was the final cutting off of the world. And its prints, the dark powers and passions and wickedness which had infested the creation from God. It is therefore the world as a system, as represented by its capital Babylon, that is judged and dies, which is what we talked about last week. The person then who is in Christ has been cut off from the world. That person is a new creation, which is why baptism all of a sudden becomes so fundamental. In the same way the the land is brought up out of the waters, we are brought up out of the waters as a new creation. We are declaring as we do that that we have partaken and are participants in the new world. That we are there. We have been integrated into the family of God and have brought into that new creation. And that's where that symbolism starts to, starts to tie in. One more quote from Father Stephen DeYoung. Participating in Christ's death and resurrection and the reality of this cutting off and new creation takes place in the mystery of baptism. To be baptized is to be baptized into Christ and therefore to put on Christ. To be baptized into Christ is to be integrated into the family of God. It is to leave behind whatever characterized life in the world and its systems of relationships to become a part of a new people created by God. But even as we do that, we have to recognize that our call, our vocation, isn't to cut ourselves off in such a way that we, like Peter, are going, the best way to do this is to hold, our, hold everybody at a distance. Like, that's, that's not the call. That's not the vocation. We're called to be priests, and so doing, to be that one who brings others with us into some, a new relationship. Okay, so that lays out why, one, circumcision isn't something but it, I think it helps to bring a greater clarity to why circumcision was so fundamental and why baptism is so relevant to us as we stand and we are integrated into the family of God, not as an individual, but to become part of something corporate for our faith to be joined to that thing. Okay, uh, stand with me again. Roll your shoulders. And take a seat and focus on good posture. So, um, what really was real, I, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed this part. Um, I'm going to try to shorten it up for you because I nerded out on this part. Um, those four rules, those four rules create all sorts of questions. Where do they come from? Why are they relevant? How do we apply them in our daily lives? So first part, where do they come from? That's really one of those things to where if you start to look at them, what, you can find them in Leviticus. Um, yay. Woo. Um, Uh, specifically applied to the person who has not converted to become an Israelite, but specifically to the sojourner. These are the same rules that apply to them. 
Um, however, the wording is different between the way those words are, uh, the way it's stated there, and say the way that James states it. Actually, the closest uh, resemblance of all of it is the, um, the book of Jubilees, um, which is a, uh, a book written between so the end of the exile and before the time of Jesus. And in that, it's, it's a retelling of the story of Genesis and Exodus. And it's a, medita- one, a portion of it meditates on the idea that is, what should someone who hasn't been given the full revelation of the law be expected to participate in? And these four rules are basically at the heart of it. Um, so, but I, I think what, what's really helpful even to think about that idea is to just think about the fact that in, in Genesis 2, God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they do, then they are cut off from the tree of life. So there is this uh, tension that's created between um, good and evil, life and death. So when we get to Deuteronomy, and Moses sums up what is sort of the fundamental thinking or understanding of how we should think about the law, he puts it this way, Deuteronomy 13, or 30, 15 to 18. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. So there's this tension that is set up again here, which is that as new sort of um, expectations are given to people. There's this, this tension that's life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse. So we see that in these two. So would we be surprised that then at the heart of these rules, we would find something very similar? I'm going to quote uh, very heavily in the next uh, couple minutes from uh, Elena Butova, Uh, And the reason is, is because she wrote her PhD dissertation on one verse. (laughs) Uh, 300 pages on this idea, which is where do the rules come from and what's at the heart of the rules? So if anyone can answer the question, well, I feel like she she did a bang-up job. So, first part. Uh, from Elena Butova, and this is uh, meditation on specifically what happens in Genesis 3. Thus, the first covenant linked obedience with fullness of life and disobedience with death. At the same time, both options were connected to food. Thus, the first prohibition is given in connection to food. The eating of this fruit, prohibited by the belief in its supernatural power, make humans participate in the first sacrifice to false gods. So you can see the, what, what she's drawing at is this idea, the fact that like, um, Adam and Eve grasp at something to give them power, which is no different than really what that first one is about, which is, are you eating food sacrificed to idols? Why? Because you are grasping for power from something outside of yourself. You're offering food in such a way because you are hoping that you will get something out of it. And so... That's the, you know, what, she, what she's drawing at. And she's saying, look, look guys, like, this, this thing isn't something separate. 
This has been the temptation from the beginning. And so when James comes through and says, the first rule, this is the rule, he's just drawing on what's happened all through scripture. This temptation to reach for something, to grab it, to have, uh, to give power to something that will give us greater power. Another quote from Elena. Consequently, the rationale for the prohibitions can be viewed as the restoration of true worship. Again, going back to what 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 Lydia did this morning, which was made in order to prevent idolatry uh, idolatry and practicing, practicing of fertility cults, to prevent adultery and destruction of marriages, to teach principles of God's universal law revealed in Torah, to teach the new converts of the holiness of God and the necessity of bearing God's image. Redirecting the converts from paganism toward the moral precepts of Torah would become the process of reversing the fall and would support the healing of the believers from previous apostasy and habitual idolatry. So we just think about those rules. First one is about grasping and getting power from something more. Then she sort of goes to that last one, about sexual, or the next one about sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality has multiple levels. And again, what's, what's interesting about this is these are extremely generic phrases that are used. And, and the point is, it's drawing on all the scripture, and it's, it's like pinging us, going, do you see how this is the case? Uh, food, oh, taken from, from something for more. Oh, oh man, I start to see that all over the place. Sexual immorality, oh man, that one sounds familiar in a bunch of ways, doesn't it? Uh, and so, you know, so she's drawing and it's saying, like, in one sense, it's about participating in other cults, which is you go and you participate in worship by doing things with people who aren't your spouse, And so that's one way that you participate in the worship. But another way to do that is to undermine the very value and nature of God, which is to unite two to become one. And so by doing something extra, we are actually speaking into a false version of that reality. So they're calling the people to that greater expectation. Now, the the last two get a little weird because it talks about uh, animals are strangled and away from blood. And so the strangled one really becomes odd because the, the word strangled is um, to, uh, it, it can be used in different ways. To, to drown, which is like basically to, to keep the, the breath inside. It can even, the, the word can be used to make a, an airtight box. So when you're strangling something, you are actually trapping the breath inside of it. Why should that matter? Or why would that be fundamentally significant? And then again, with the blood one. So Elena puts it this way. The pulsation of blood and the moving of breath in the nostrils become signs and presence of life in living creatures. Thus, both features, blood and breathing, symbolize life. If animal meat is used for food, part of it shall be returned to the dust. This is why the blood must be poured out on the ground, because blood represents life. Also, the breath has to depart without being blocked, since breath also represents life, as we remember from Genesis 2, when God breathes into humanity. Faith is in the resurrection was based on the word of God, but demonstrated in the act of pouring out of blood. From this point, the prohibition of blood consumption, as well as the consumption of meat in strangled animals, had its purpose to uphold the hope in the restoration of humanity and their world. Wow. So by participating in things that defy the hope, of where does our life come from, we undermine the very belief 
of what we claim to believe. That's what, that's what they're driving at with these. They're saying, look, if you participate in these type of sacrifices and these type of things, you become the opposite of what you're supposed to be worshiping. You're claiming that new creation has come, that you are part of that, that you believe that Christ gives us life, but that you're trying to get life from something else. There's only one place that life comes from, nothing else. And so when we participate in it that way, we, we, we grasp for ways to control that, which starts to sound again, just like Genesis 3 all over again, right? We're just grasping for something to, for control. Elena again, the last point of the controversy between life and death shows the prohibition of blood and breath linked. Both life returning to dust and the breath of life returning to God reflect the reversal of the process of the creation of humans. The spiritual meaning of both dietary prohibitions reveals the belief in God's power to restore creation and life to its original state. The participating in actions that undermine that belief are behind the prohibitions. So we're, we're undermining. We're constantly, that's, that's what the heart of this is. And so we're going to have to think about, well, what is that? We don't strangle animals, I think. We don't do a whole lot with blood. What does that really mean for us then? So two more quotes from Elena, then we'll move forward. The preliminary conclusion for this discussion would, pro view, would view the prohi prohibitions as the illustration of belief in the restoration of the world. Belief in the restoration of the world. In contrast, the consumption of blood and breath represents the opposite of belief in restoration of life. Deliberately participating in the destruction of this natural circle by strangling an animal for pagan sacrifice or by eating its meat would express an extreme point of unbelief in God's control over life and death. And so to participate in this false worship is to undermine the very claims that Christianity puts forward. And so they're like, you have to avoid these things because it will fundamentally shape who you are. If you participate in things that you say are like this, uh, if, if you say you want to train to run a marathon, but the closest you get to running is watching other people run, then you're not training really. You can learn some good things by watching other people and learning about how to run, but at some point, you gotta get out and run. So if you do the opposite though, where you're sitting there eating really unhealthy things while you're watching people talking about running, then you're undermining that. And that's what the, at the heart of this is, is, if you say you believe in new creation, if you participate in things that undermine that belief, then you've missed the point and you start to undermine your actual belief because what you do shapes who you are. So last one. As a result, practicing true worship established on faith in Christ signifying a rejection of idolatry in all its forms, food sacrifice to idols and defiled marriages supported the reversal from fallen condition to the recreation initiated by God in the hearts of Gentile converts. Keeping the four prohibitions also supported converts from turning to paganism to God on the practical level with the understanding that it was the proper response of believers to the new creation originated by God in their heart. All right, one more time for me. Stand, please. Roll your shoulders and take a seat. Now, why am I having you do this? Because as you keep doing it, you start to be more and more attentive to the fact that you're sitting poorly. The more times you do it, 
the more you start to think about it and the more you realize, boy, I'm starting to slump. So in the same way, as scripture is working with us, it is inviting us to recognize those places where our true worship isn't continuous, but we're actually, well, it is continuous. It's not continuous to the one. It should be too. So we're constantly being reminded, being refocused to see where is true worship from and where is it to be directed. So what I want to do here in this last little section is just real quick look at meditations on these four rules and how they might apply to our lives. This isn't to limit it. This is normally outside of the scope of type of things I do with my sermons, but here's a couple. Food not offered to idols. What are we offering our things to because it will give us power? If the fundamental purpose of that is, is we're grasping for something because we want to have control, there's only one who has control. And as we grasp for other things to get that control, then we're worshiping something other than the one who has that control. Avoid blood, just generically, that says avoid blood. What an interesting one, because it's so generic. Do you find it ironic? Avoid blood. That here we are, about to have communion, and it says avoid blood. If we stop and think about it, there is one and one only blood that can set the world right. It's Christ's. There's no other who can set the world right. But yet I find, at least in my life, there are temptations that when there's something going wrong, whatever sphere, if there's a certain person who seems to be causing problems, if only that person would get out of the way, i.e. I'm out for their blood, the world would be set right. There's only one, one person's blood who will set the world right, no other. And every time that I participate in some form of scapegoating someone or something with the intent of trying to set the world right, I missed the point. I have participated in the very thing that I say I don't believe. There's only one and one person's blood who can set the world right. So if we look at it, um, then take those two, strangled and the blood together. Bread and blood, life or death. Breath and, breath and blood, life or death. Where do I get my life from? It's very easy to, for instance, like with food, get to the point where obviously that's where my life comes from. I need to eat because that's where my life comes from. Instead of like Jesus, when he is meeting with a Samaritan woman and they come back and they're like, we brought food. And he's like, I already ate. Our life only comes from one. And so part of that is the fundamental understanding of what fasting is for. It's to remind ourselves of where does our life come from? And the elders this year put forward fasting as one of the things that we wanted to focus on this year. And so just a reminder of that, which is that fasting isn't something where we manipulate God into uh, doing what we want because we were good at something. 
It is helping us to reorient ourselves, to recognize where does our life come from. And in so doing, we grow and mature, and that's where things grow out of. What will give me life? It's easy to continue to sort of look at that and say things like wealth. Wealth does for me what God does for me. It commands my allegiance, and we start to attribute it to the power that only, ha- only God has. We all live, no matter who of us, all live to be wealthy in a way that all of history has no concept of, no matter who we are. And we can start to attribute that control, just like Genesis 3, to somehow giving us something that there's only one place that comes from. And so we can undermine the very thing we say we do by letting other things orient ourselves to shape us. And the final one, sexual immorality. Uh, quote here from Larry Hart- Hurtado on a book, uh, I, I love the title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian? In early Christian communities, men were held to a much higher standard of sexual behavior than other p- places in the culture. It was shaping them to be faithful husbands and dads. Whilst women also had a status in their communities that were much higher than in other communities. So sexual immorality is one that can be seen in so many different ways. One, uh, a good representation of Christ in the church is seen in a right-functioning marriage. It can be seen in a man demonstrating true biblical manhood or in a woman demonstrating true biblical womanhood. Not potentially what the culture tells you what womanhood is or what manhood is and looking to scripture to justify that specific expectation, but to, just, to follow scripture to where it leads for what is biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. All of these things cast that vision for what it is to see the new creation outflowing. To look at an individual who recognizes and says, there is only one place that will set the world right, only one blood that will set the world right, and then participates in truly acting that out. And biblical marriages that represent Christ and the church in such a way that the world looks and goes, that is transformative. Questions before I close? Two closing quotes for you. First one from Michael Heiser on the idea of circumcision and baptism. Membership in the family of God would foster and sustain faith. These were God's goals for the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel. The same is true of the people of God, known as the church. The sign and rite have changed, but the theological point is the same. The final one, true worship provides a vision of both the now and the not yet of how creation has already been restored and how it will be restored in the future. To participate in false worship is to participate in undermining the reality of new creation and to serve something other than the God who can set all things right. So Lord, we thank you that it is only you who can set all things right for bringing us into new creation, to making us new creation. Lord, we... Ask, Lord, for continued 
revelation to recognize where it is that our worship does end of you and can you continue to bring us into more of what we should to worship you and you alone because only you are worthy. In your name, amen.